started um, a study in the book of Jude, the little epistle, and we looked at just the very introductory remarks to Jude and looking at um, the opening of it as far as the identification of who the author is, and we didn't get much further than that. We looked through scripture, and, and it was a good discussion. A lot of you guys had some great discussion as well. Um, the theme of this is dealing with apostasy or a departure from the faith uh, as far as what is what is considered orthodox belief. And Jude, early on, writes this letter, and he writes it as a warning and as an exhortation to those that would read it um, that we be careful, you know, essentially. And today we're still studying that, and we're still looking at that. And I thought it's, it's more important than ever um, in our world as well because there are so many very subtle false doctrines coming in and I'm saying it's always attacking people from all kinds of different angles. I think today even more so because you can get every everything under the sun on the internet and I see that where somebody will get an email or they'll google something or they'll listen to someone and then and then all of a sudden that person is following sometimes bad doctrine or, or churches can go that way as well. And so I think it's good to go back to the scriptures, and Jude calls for that, um, and he, he calls out the warning in his day about what he saw as certain men that came in unaware. And that's the, uh, the big thing. A lot of times people don't write, you know, sign up and say, hey, I'm going to believe in false doctrine or become an apostate or have somebody that follow an apostate, and that was more the warning. But it happens. And we need to have our eyes open, our ears of understanding, and our minds. And I think in this day and age, there's even less excuse to be ignorant of these things because we can sort through them and we have so many tools at our disposal to study the Word of God. So I'm going to just read down the first, through the first three verses and then we'll pick it up. And last week you had some good discussion things, and if you want to share something, feel free to do that. Um, and I realize I'm back in the church era. The, 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 we were meeting, we're meeting in the fellowship hall. Probably next week we'll be back in there. Um, and that kind of lends itself to more informal feel to it, I think. And people are more comfortable with that. So don't let sitting in the church and me standing up front, you know, uh, cause you to not say anything if it's something that's on your heart. All right, let's begin here. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Lord, again, as we open up your word tonight, I pray you would just help teach us and show us from your scriptures, Lord. Again, um, helping us to understand basic truths, but also, Lord, deep things. And also having ourselves prepared to look out and see when there are false things coming our way. And that, Lord, we would always examine them according to the scripture. So, Lord, work your work tonight and may your Holy Spirit have his way in our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Last week we looked at this and we, the very opening of it. 
uh, about Jude. And I didn't make much comment past that because we looked at who he was and most likely um, the half-brother of, of Jesus and how he would have come to faith later on after the resurrection along with his other brothers. And we, we looked at that from the various perspective. And then we got talking about various doctrines that can come in and have come in and some of us coming out of in our former um, followings in religions and various things. And But basically... He begins, Jude begins, and I didn't make much of this, but he identifies himself, and then he identifies um, really who he is in Christ. He calls himself a bondservant. And again, I think the word bondservant, the doulos, the idea of someone who is a willing servant or a willing slave. And interestingly enough, in some translations, um, in, in especially foreign translations, where they don't have a word for servant per se, they use the word slave. And sometimes people find that word today kind of politically incorrect, so we don't want to talk about being a slave or anything. But that's what the word meant, a willing slave, a willing servant. And he identifies himself not as someone who is the half-brother of Jesus, which you'd think if you were wanted to be connected politically or in the right crowd, that would be the first thing most people would say. But instead, he identifies himself as a bondservant, as a slave of Jesus Christ. And again, I think it shows the attitude in which um, you find the leaders of the early church and those that were foundational in writing the New Testament. Paul, of course, uses that term over and over again in his writings, called himself a, a bondservant, a doulos. And the idea comes from the Old Testament, Exodus 21. And in the law of the bondservant, you had... A time where every seventh year, which was the year of Jubilee, slaves or servants, and these would be more indentured servitude kind of thing, were allowed to be freed of their obligation. And if a servant wanted to stay with their master because they loved their master, they could do so. And they would take the mark of piercing of an ear with an awl, and which would be quite painful, I imagine, doing it in something like that, uh, usually used for punching holes in belts and other things. Um, and, and they would punch a hole in their ear, and that mark of the piercing would be identifying them as a bondservant from there on out. And basically, everywhere they went from, from then on out, they would also be identifying with their master, whom they cared enough to stay with. And uh, there was that idea of bondservant and being a willing servant. And so Jude calls himself that and not just of anybody but of jesus christ and very important with that and then we didn't get much further than that we looked at the brother of james and that would identify which jude because it would have been a very popular name the the hebrew uh, aramaic word would have been judah uh, and that was one of the patriarchs of course and um, judas iscariot was also uh, one of the followers of christ we know he um, betrayed jesus and so I always find it sort of ironic that the name, the, the one who is chosen to write about apostates is named after the, not after that one, but he's, he carries the same name as the greatest apostate that ever lived, really, which was Judas. And Judas was, again, un, the other men that were with him were unaware who would betray Jesus. Jesus knew, but they didn't until it happened. Um, so we know, anyways, this is not that Jude or Judas, but rather Jude, the brother of James, who was a half-brother of Jesus, 
And it makes sense that Jude is that one. Anyways, he goes on to say, To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. And I want to look at those words, called, sanctified, and preserved. Because it's important when he begins this, in the very first verse, he identifies um, who he's writing to. And he gives this sort of encouragement to him. By the way, Jude is, is often likened as a, a battle cry. Like, you know, we're to, as he writes this, he calls believers to alertness. And he says, hey, you know, listen up and get involved. And he begins by identifying those he's talking about. The called, the sanctified, the preserved. And I want to look at those, those words a little bit. Um, the first one is the word kletos, and it is called, and that's what the word in, in uh, Jude 1 is in the Greek. It is most often, as it's translated in the New Testament, used in the New Testament, it is used as called, and other times it's used in one occasion as invited. And the idea, it's a call of an invitation. And when he refers to believers, he says, you who are called. Now, we're called to salvation. We're called by the gospel message and and obviously called by God. But it is an invitation, and it's important to understand that, I think. Um, In the book of John, that shows up in the first miracle of Jesus. The location of it was at a wedding. And it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And now both Jesus and his disciples were invited. And there it is. They were called to a wedding, but it was a call by invitation. And it's important because, I'm, I, I, of course, in the whole, the way the scriptures teach how we are saved, there is that call from God, I, I, a call that goes out from eternity past, even before we were. And that's that part of being called to him. But it is a call of invitation that includes the will of man. And you have, like in any invitation, the will to accept it or to reject that invitation. And you see here God doing his invitation, and he did that. And he's writing to those who have received Christ, who have received that invitation. They are the called. And if you're in that category, you are called. It's that simple. Uh, Invited to the wedding. And invited, in this case, it's the term here in John 2, specifically at that event that took place. We see that uh, used in several places. And then um, I wrote down some things here. I think I added something here. Oh, and I I was looking at Um, the fact that you can be, if you're called to something, you can be obedient to that call or you can be disobedient to the call. And the Bible talks about that in the um, context of believing or not believing. And, for instance, in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, you see this when it says, The word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, what that meant is that there were the priestly orders of Jews, and they also believed. That's basically how that is said. But as Luke writes here in Acts chapter uh, 6, and he describes it, 
He's saying they were obedient to the faith in doing so. And again, I always say this, that if you can be obedient, you can also be disobedient. So there were those that rejected as well. They're not the ones that are in focus here, but that is, that is what happens. Uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul uses it here. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And again, he sees that obedience to the faith, and particularly in Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.13 writes, While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ. And again, you're obedient to the gospel or is implied disobedient to the gospel. And for your liberal sharing with them and all men. Uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And part of that invitation and the receiving of that invitation, is it's by faith, but it is done through the hearing of the invitation, right? You hear, in this case, you have the word of God. And I do think that a proper understanding of that is necessary, or else you, you go off. Because if it's all on man, that... Only, you know, we have, God has no, basically, the, the term uh, in, in the, you know, circles of arguments, and all you have Arminians, and you have Calvinists, and various shades of each, and some that go really extreme one way or the other, and then there's others that are more balanced in that. But I really believe that there's a perspective, the biblicist perspective, which sees both of those. We see how God created man with a will. Um, and he also is sovereign, and he is at work in the process of calling people and saving them. Uh, and, and you can't boil that down into any book or anything like that. It's, that's God who, whose mystery in that um, is as infinite as he is. But I will say it, it is not, under, not understandable um, because um, it's, it's like having a, a theological roof over your head. And if it's all on man, you have half the roof. And if it's all on God, you have half the roof. And if, you're, if you put both of them together, you have a whole roof. And I believe the scripture does teach that. And it's, a, it's the biblical perspective of things. So anyways, that's in the calling of this. And he, I, I'm not getting that all out of that one word. But I'm looking at what is involved in that call. It comes from God, it is invitation, and it is dependent upon the hearer of those things to receive it by faith, and then he's part of that group. He's part of that group that the next word, which is um, hagiozo, which is to be sanctified or to be set apart, and that's what he says in back there in the, in the beginning of Jude there where he says to be um, the called and to sanctified, right? He says, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. By the way, there's a triune perspective here in that. You notice there's, there's three things that are mentioned. Those who are called and part of the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit is to, to illuminate the sinner by the word of God. And he's to also convict of sin and reprove of sin and to call men to repentance. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are sanctified, set apart for a purpose by God the Father. And then we are preserved in Jesus Christ. 
And you see the triune God at work in our position in Christ, in that. Anyways, just a little side note, because there's a lot of these triplets that are found in the book of Jude, and there's a whole list of them I have that I may look at in a future study. Anyways, we'll go back to this, but we have the, uh, the idea of being sanctified, and that is um, agiozo, which is to be dedicated or set apart for a purpose. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, among whom you also are the called, there it is, of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, and there is the word saints, or um, that same root word, of Hagio, and it means to be separated, and it means to be called out from among. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> I'm just going to flip something over here. Uh, yeah, we'll move on here. Romans 8.28, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans fifteen sixteen, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable and then sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And again, we're set apart. That's that same word, sanctified. Carries the idea of something that is holy. First Corinthians chapter one and verse two. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And again, previous verse says you're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then over here it says you're sanctified in Christ Jesus. The short answer is we're sanctified by God. <clears throat> Called to be saints. That is the one who is separated. And you have that, again, very key to the writings of the apostles as they lay this out when they say who they're writing to. They are called ones, and they are sanctified ones in that. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Uh, that was the same verse. Sorry, I, I don't know why I have that twice. And then some ideas of how we are set apart. Um, here we have John chapter 17, verse 17. And it says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the word of God has a sanctifying effect on us as well. So we have God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the Word of God, the Bible, that helps sanctify us and set us apart for those things. And then the word, the next word is preserved. And this is uh, the Greek word terio. And it is, again, to keep, to guard, to watch over. And the Bible says in Jude, we're preserved in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're actually guarded. And I like that because you've been invited by faith to him. And if you've received him, you are part of those who are, are separated onto him. And you're separated out to him. And he's made you his peculiar people in that way. But then he guards us and keeps us for eternity. And I do believe the scripture teaches over and over again the, the doctrine of eternal salvation or eternal security because it is based upon him and not us. And I do think people err when they go off on a tangent and say, well, if I, you know, I have to keep my salvation and you know, it's, all, it's all dependent upon me and how I end up or whatever else. 
And it's a misunderstanding of how the Bible teaches uh, this idea of being preserved. There are several verses of Scripture um, that God watches over you and me in, in even dark days, you know. Uh, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-eight, and and I why I want to read these Old Testament verses is because that's not a unique principle to just the New Testament. The Old Testament also teaches a salvation that is uh, preserved. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His saints; they are preserved forever. Very clear. And but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 56, verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. You have not kept my feet from falling. That I may walk before God in the light of the living. Again, it's written here how God preserves us as we walk now. Not only for all eternity, but now. He's able to keep us from stumbling. He's able to keep our feet. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 17. Saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. And I have that in there because uh, it shows again the power by which God is in control of all things. Um, And we, we have that same power that keeps us. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. And again, showing in, in that special occasion, God will seal and keep those 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will go out, and I believe they'll take up where the church left off. The program of missions as we know it will eventually come to an end from the church and will be picked up again by Israel. And it will be coming out of uh, the people of Israel, uh, yet future. And he's going to keep them in the darkest time on the earth. He's going to do that. I have 11 things here that show us that we're preserved in Jesus, Jesus Christ. And what, we have a few, time, a few minutes here. I'm just going to go down here. John chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus writes, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And if you want a point, we are secured by the work of the Son of God. Very clearly, Jesus says that. And then we are secured by the Father. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you see how you have God the Father preserving And then you have Jesus preserving. We are also sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Again you see the triune God involved in our preservation. Our eternal security. Saves and by Jesus 
preserved by Jesus, by the Father, sealed by the, the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you can break the seal of God, then you could lose your salvation. But you can't. Nobody can. 1 Peter 1.23 We're sanctified and we are preserved by the word of God. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Part of the fact that we are saved for eternity is it finds its basis on the word of God, which is eternal also. John 17.12 Jesus in his high priestly prayer, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. And he was lost from the beginning. That was Judas. That the scripture might be fulfilled. John 17.20 I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And again, you have Jesus praying future for those who will believe. You were included in Jesus' prayer. And I think that's pretty great. Um, And again, he prays for us. So we are preserved by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the fact that Jesus prays for us. We have our uh, secured in the work by the position of us in Christ. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Another aspect of our eternal security. And then we are saved by the everlasting arms. We sang about that tonight. Deuteronomy 33:27, the eternal God is our is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. And I want you to know that, you know, as it's being written here, when Moses uh, is, is writing this down, he's writing about those everlasting arms of God. And remember the times when Moses had to have his arms lifted up. God holds us up uh, forever. And I'm glad. And again, that's a anthropomorphic expression an expression where you give you know human qualities to the divine but it is for our benefit to understand what god's like he has arms a lot stronger than we do first peter 1 5 and we're kept by the power of god who are kept by the power of god through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time and that's the long run-on sentence that Peter has there in the opening verses, but he culminates with that fact that in eternity it will be revealed for us how we are kept. And I often think about that because I think that down here we battle with doubt, we battle with sin, we battle with the flesh, we battle with all kinds of things that are nipping at us about that secure feeling that we have someday if you truly his you're going to be in his presence and it's going to make sense and we are going to understand we how we are kept and why fully understanding that and i like that what peter lays out for us to be revealed in the last time and then first john two seventeen, 
And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Aren't you glad for that? <laughs> if you're doing the will of God, you abide forever. You say, well, what's the will of God? Boiled down to really two statements. The will of God is that we first come to faith in him by obeying the gospel. And secondly, that we live for him. And those two things, the fruit of righteousness in our lives abides forever. And we need to know and rest in that, you know, when we think about that. Why is it important to live for Jesus today? Because it has lasting repercussions. If you would buy and do the will of God, uh, I think of the illustration with that verse because um, years ago, a guy named Wayne Collier, he used to come to MBBI and uh, eventually he recruited me to go with Berean Mission. And I met Wayne right off my first week at MBBI when I was a freshman student. Um, he was hanging out in our room, uh, one of the mission reps. And um, anyways, I, I was talking with him and he's a good friend. And not long after that, another man came through uh, named Harrison Smith. And Harrison was the president of the Central American Mission. And he had come, and same kind of thing, you know, kind of recruiting people for missions. And I had a chance to sit down with him. And I, I, I was talking to him, and I asked him how he got saved and all that. I said, is there anybody else that got saved in your family? He says, yeah, my, my dad. And I said, well, how did your dad get saved? You know, we were just talking about that. It was, it was good. Well, he says there was a man named Wayne Collier. And I said, well, wait a minute. I just met Wayne, you know, not long before this. And, and Harrison had come from Massachusetts. Wayne Collier had come from Massachusetts. And, and Harrison's dad had, was down there in, in um, Massachusetts, Northfield. And he, uh, so he started sharing a story. He says, yeah. He says, one day um, we had church, and, and Wayne was supposed to be coming to church, but he didn't show up. Uh, not he wasn't speaking or anything but he, he didn't come and later he found out that the lord had prompted wayne to go visit harrison smith's dad who was a great skeptic and didn't want really anything to do with the gospel and wayne went on a sunday to go visit this man sat down with him witnessed to him for a couple hours the man got so convicted and so upset that he left and he went for a walk and as he went for a walk, he came down to the end of this, this street area, and there was a memorial there to D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, D.L. Moody. And on it was a Bible verse. The Bible verse was 1 John 2.17, or part of it. And it says, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And it was that Bible verse that confronted him on a memorial stone that caused him to get saved. And he came back and he told Wayne. And I, as I read through that, every time I come to that verse, I think about that. D.L. Moody had been dead for probably 75, 80 years at that time. It was in the mid-70s to early 80s when that occurred. And, and here his work was still continuing, not because of D.L. Moody, but because he believed in the one who abides forever. And the word of God abides forever. So... The fruit of what you do tonight here and how you live for Jesus in this life and all that may indeed have eternal consequences for people in a good way decades from now, should the Lord tarry. Ecclesiastes 3.14, the work of God. 
I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away. God does it that men should fear before him. And again, we are preserved by the work of God, which is forever. And then lastly, Hebrews 13, 5, or 5, by the very presence of God himself. We're preserved by his presence. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Anyways, just a few thoughts on the, on the words that open up in the book of Jude. Um, called, sanctified, and preserved. Something we can rest in this week. And hopefully that encourages you in the middle of your week. Lord, we are grateful for your word. And we pray even now that, Lord, we would live for you as we should. And, Lord, people would respond to your gospel call. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.